Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. According to Buddhism, we're in year, I actually don't even know, I'd have to look it up, but it's like 2,560 something. Do you know what it is, Juan? No. I, I usually just round it off to 2,600. Um, and Buddhism doesn't follow, you know, the same Christian calendar that we do. But according to our modern current calendar, it's uh, coming to the end of year 2021. And what a weird fucking year it's been. Year, two years, really, for, you know, like uh, the first pandemic of our lifetimes. Hopefully not first of many, but possibly first of many. So before we get into introductions and get started with meditation and stuff, I'd be interested to have you just reflect for a moment <clears throat> under the context that um, from a Buddhist perspective, we're here to awaken. The whole point, you know, that whole kind of existential crisis that we go through <laughs> as humans of like, what is it all about? What am I doing here? What's the meaning of life? Uh, I would say that from a Buddhist perspective, we're here to heal. We're here to awaken. We're here to experience freedom. And uh, with that freedom, create a positive change, help others, be compassionate, be generous, be of service. Um, and from that perspective, everything is an opportunity for your own uh, liberation, salvation. Salvation sounds so Christian, as though there's some sort of external source of your salvation. From a Buddhist perspective, uh, we could use the term salvation. You can save yourself from unnecessary suffering. And so as you reflect on this year and where you were at the end of last year and going into the holidays last year and going into um, New Year's and everything. What you learned, what opportunities, what growth perhaps? Did you become more patient, more tolerant? Have you learned to be alone more? I know going into the pandemic almost two years ago now, I was like, well, we're lucky as Buddhists that we already have the tools. How fortunate to already have the, the, a mindfulness tool and, and anybody who's been on meditation retreat already know how to be alone and uh, giving ourselves our attention, not constantly looking externally for validation and now, of course, that's not true for everyone here tonight. Some of you just suffered enough in the early pandemic that you started practicing. 
some of you in your first year and kind of like it was the difficulty of, of this year that drove you to starting your meditation practice. But many of you have been at it for many years. And, um, and so whether you're new or intermediate or seasoned practitioner, reflecting on what have I learned? How many opportunities for awakening has this global pandemic? And, and are you able to see it as an opportunity? Your, maybe you lost your job and seeing that rather than as a curse, but as a, an opportunity to be unemployed. Maybe you, um, maybe you lost more than your job. Some people, you know, lost housing, lost, um, maybe lost loved ones. How many people died this year that you knew? Friend of mine, I saw posting, somebody I haven't seen in a while, but that was very in, in, uh, integral and in, against the stream and had done facilitator training and had been running the against the stream group in New York City for a while. I saw that he died yesterday and I'm just thinking about um, you know, the truth of impermanence and the truth of change and of loss and and how our practice isn't just about like how much uh, better at meditation have I become or how much, but what difficulties have given you the opportunity to become more tender, more caring, more accepting, more forgiving. So just reflecting for a moment on this year. And then when you're ready, um, as part of one of the core intentions of Against the Stream to help people facilitate community, uh, find someone in, in, uh, at home on Zoom. I'll put you guys into these breakout rooms. And I, it looks like, I don't know, about a third of the people choose not to join the breakout room, uh, which is okay. Of course, it's your choice. And also if you're in the room and you don't wanna talk to anybody, you can uh, abstain, it's okay to, to skip it if you want, but I deeply encourage it. One of the refuges of Buddhism is connection, is accountability, is, is sangha, what we call. Um, and so even if you don't really want to do it, like, uh, like, like a, a lot of the things that are good for us, we don't necessarily really want to do. I think a lot of introverts like meditation because you don't have to, nobody fucks with you. And you get to, but part of it is actually talking to each other and making those connections and practicing being honest and open and vulnerable with each other. Um, and create the breakout groups. So if you're at home, I really encourage you to 
introduce yourself, join it. What, also what happens um, at home is that uh, sometimes if you don't join the group, you're leaving someone hanging because there's somebody in that group without anybody to talk to. And I get messages about like, nobody's in my group. So, um, please consider joining. And um, one person speaking and do it like this, do like one of the things uh, that I woke up to this year or that I learned about myself this year or an opportunity that I had around circumstances of my life, remembering that it's not all good news and that a lot of insights come in the form of like not such good news. Of like, oh, I woke up to that. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> like, that was part of my, you know, I accepted that. That was a, that was a big thing for a lot of people this year. Seeing the addictions, or that um, even though I was sober, um, I, I saw my addiction manifesting around food, or around sex, or around money, or something else. Of you know, kind of, and that's also awareness. It's insight. It's an opportunity to see the truth, um, which is uh, doesn't feel like good news but um, important, important understanding to have. Um, so kind of just saying, and then, you know, say your thing and then saying something else and, you know, reflect for a couple minutes with each other. And one person just listening, the other person reporting. One of the other things I've seen about myself this year. So I'll throw you into groups, please join them. So finding a way to sit that's upright and relaxed. Posture for meditation. <laughs> Allowing our eyes to be gently closed and Softening, releasing, relaxing into the upright posture. And let go of the past as we bring our full awareness to the present present time, non-judgmental, kind awareness. An attitude of loving kindness, of goodwill, well-wishing towards your own heart and mind, towards each other. Extending Wishes for freedom, for happiness, for well-being in all directions to all living beings. This interconnected existence. Where how we feel, how we behave affects others. How others feel and behave affects us. Sending love, kindness, compassion, forgiveness to your friends and family, 
your neighbors and communities. Extending it outward in all directions, including all beings. An attitude of accepting what is, the reality of suffering and joy. <coughs> And from this place, this intention of kind awareness, bringing our attention to our own bodies, hearts, minds. As we reflected on this last year and what we've learned, experienced, now reflecting, investigating this present experience, this, this breath, this body, what we can learn, what we can see clearly, respond wisely to our own moment to moment experience. Letting the breath be the initial object of awareness. Breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Feel the breath. Breathing out. Experience the sensations of the exhale at the nostrils or chest or belly. Each time the awareness gets involved in thinking about the past again or future, choose to disengage from that thought. Let the thought go. I'm not trying to stop it, but just don't pay so much attention to what your mind is doing. Give your attention to your body breathing over and over.
Choose to keep the breath as your primary object. But it's meant to just be a starting place. The invitation is to 
expand to your whole being, this physical body, head to toe. The sense doors, sound and smell and taste, sight, included in our present time awareness, as well as thoughts and emotions. Your whole being, nothing outside of your awareness, even the memories and plans, part of what we're awake to, aware of. The mind thinks, the body feels. Heart beating, lungs breathing, ears hearing. Becoming aware of the impermanent nature of all of the experiences, the thoughts arising and passing. Sensations constantly changing. The breath coming and going and sounds appearing, sustaining dissolving Mindfulness receives without judgment, accepts both pleasure and pain as impermanent, as unreliable, as impersonal.
more we're able to tune into the process of thoughts arising and passing rather than being lost in the story, the content, the memory or plan right now. Just thoughts, the thinking mind doing its job, planning and worrying, remembering and resenting. Mindfulness knows the impermanent and impersonal nature of the thinking mind. The humility and honest assessment to understand that so often our thoughts are incorrect, ignorant, confused, untrustworthy.
Returning to the attitude of loving kindness towards this mind, this body, yourself. Unconditional acceptance of yourself just as you are. Loving, forgiving, compassionate intention towards your heart, your mind, your body. and an acknowledgement that you are doing the work. You're training your mind, developing wisdom, compassion, equanimity, through your own effort, your own salvation coming from your own action. Meeting yourself with as much kindness, appreciation. So easy to see what's difficult, what's unpleasant, challenging. Acknowledge the hard work, the effort, the transformation, this process of awakening that's taking place in your heart and mind. Usually in the beginning, not always, I don't know if I did it this year, um, but sometimes in the beginning of the year, 
I like to start with uh, the kind of origin story of the Buddha and go through the Buddha's life and, um, you know, going through his struggle for awakening and his uh, experience of awakening and then the core teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and really take our time going through the lists of, of what the Buddha taught and how he taught it and some of the contexts and how we can apply it to our own lives and um, so I might start that when I next week I won't be here uh, I'll be on vacation but um, the following week second week in January so I thought maybe ending the year with um, the last teaching of the Buddha and um, you know, the context is, is that the Buddha had his awakening experience. He ended suffering through his own effort, doing the kind of practice that we're doing, mindfulness, led to seeing clearly the impermanent and unreliable and impersonal nature of this human condition that we're all having, this group hallucination <laughs> that we're all sharing in. And and not suffering about it anymore. And it's like, it's so fucking radical. We turned him into a saint because not suffering is so, so hard to not do. So hard to not be identified with and take personal our views and our opinions and our follow our cravings and obey our aversions and such a rat, you know, it's so simple on some level, like don't cling, have compassion, don't take it personal. Easy, go, do it. But it's so, as we all know from trying, it's a gradual, it's a slow uh, process of seeing clearly and, and responding more and more wisely. And as the story goes, it took him seven years of intensive practice and however many incarnations before that that led to that, who, if you believe in that kind of shit, I kind of do, <laughs> maybe, you know. Um, and he spent 45 years teaching. He dedicated, after awakening, seven years of intensive internal work, not doing service, just doing his own awakening practice. And then said, okay, now I have something to share and spent 45 years sharing it didn't charge anybody for it gave it away freely set up a community with a whole bunch of guidelines and um you know ways of, of ethical behavior and all based on karma and and the core of it is that <clears throat> this message that we human beings can end suffering through our own effort without any kind, and this very radical departure from the polytheistic uh, culture that he grew up in, um, different than our monotheistic culture that we've grown up in, most of us. You know, here where the, the, we get this message that there is a God, and God is in control. And he grew up in this culture, the kind of Brahmanic Indian culture that said, there's lots of gods. <laughs> and the gods are in control <laughs> and you can petition them for your salvation. And if you'd be devoted and, you know, like all of those 
views, little, you know, not so dissimilar, but a little different than what you were taught in your temple or church or synagogue or wherever. But having rejected, having seen like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like most of us are kind of here because we're like, well, if that made sense, I'd still be over there. And him saying like, well, that doesn't make sense. But through internal investigation, this, what feels just like a humanist psychological approach, like how does the mind work? How do humans, what makes us so reactive? Why do we suffer so much? And spent 45 years sharing this message of empowerment, of saying, you can do this, it's possible to end suffering. It's possible to get free. Practice some renunciation, train your mind. Practice generosity, be kind, be forgiving. And you can get free. But also had to set up this hierarchical structure of a community. And Buddhism traditionally is very hierarchical. And there was the Buddha and then everyone else. And it was not our sort of Western um you know uh, egalitarian and and um you know our ideas of democracy no democracy in buddhism <laughs> uh total hierarchy the you know the, the buddha made the rules and you all got to choose whether you followed them or not but the nice thing about the buddhist rules is that when you contemplate them they all make sense unlike a lot of religious rules where like wait that seems like bullshit usually when you listen to the buddhas like teachings on karma you're like yeah that makes sense don't lie and don't steal and don't do things that are going to cause harm to yourself or other people and be careful with your sexuality and avoid intoxicants because you're less likely to be careful with your speech and your actions and your sexuality and if you use intoxicants so you know all sort of common sense they're, they're you know training suggestions training rules all these years teaching uh, and there was a lot of um, conflict a lot of difficulties you know I, I i was a little bit surprised when i heard how many when i started to realize how much uh discord there was in early buddhism how much fighting how much arguing how much power uh plays there were within the the sangha within the community i guess we shouldn't be surprised i don't know if you're surprising to you but for me i had this idealized image of like wait you have a fully enlightened buddha everyone's just going to be stoked right like i feel like i'd be so stoked if i had a fully enlightened buddha to study with that i would just be on my best behavior But apparently that wasn't the case. Like people were not on their best behavior and uh, not only within his own community, there was uh, power struggles and, and particularly with one um, of his uh, relatives, I think it was a cousin, Devadatta, and his cousin, right? I think it's his cousin and uh, who wanted to be the boss and this power struggle and Devadatta was this kind of, um, uh, you know, is portrayed as this 
unskillful, selfish, self-centered, power-hungry, jealous, insecure, uh, was like, how come my cousin gets to all of the attention <laughs> and I don't and I feel left out and I could be a, a, a Buddha, I could be a great teacher, but you know, not motivated by wisdom, motivated by greed. And at times during the, uh, Devadatta tried to murder the Buddha and there was assassination attempts and um, put people up to accusations, false accusations. Uh, the Buddha was accused of rape at one point and impre you know, breaking his celibacy and impregnating somebody and um, like really painful, um, difficult things. If, I mean, it se seems difficult. The Buddha, the way the stories go, he's always just kind of like, well, the truth will be revealed, no big deal. <laughs> it's okay if you lie and cheat and steal because uh, not gonna take it personal. But also sometimes a sternness that said like, oh man, the karma, David Dots' karma is just what he's doing to himself. Not, not, not so much like self-cherishing of like, how dare you do that to me? But like, man, you're really hurting yourself with these actions. You know, my whole, the whole thing is like, let's stop hurting ourselves by lying and stealing and cheating and causing difficulties in communities and So he lived 45 years, lived through wars, lived through um, at one point towards the end. Of his, he, he was also this kind of like political activist in some ways and um, intervened in between warring factions. And sometimes the warring factions were his own relatives. He came from a kingdom and, and then his you know, other kingdoms were trying to take over uh, his father's kingdom and uh, he intervened at some point and was like, gave them a Dharma talk on the importance of nonviolence and the karma of war. And, uh, and it worked a couple of times, but then at some point it didn't work. And his, all of his ancestors, I think almost all of his ancestors were murdered by another, like a distant cousin or, or something like that. Some other family that was um, somehow related and so imagine that, that, you know, he's this awakened Buddha and his, his family is slaughtered in a war in his lifetime over greed out of um, And I like the, I don't know how you, for me, I like the humanization and the, uh, makes it more real to me rather than just this idealized peaceful human of like a human that has to deal with the kind of shit we have to deal with and worse. Hopefully all of your ancestors haven't been murdered recently, but maybe some of us have experienced that kind of loss. And, and then he took it all like kind of as I was setting up, like as we reflect on our last year, all as it's what is and how do we respond wisely to it? lived for 45 years. He died um,
Just a moment, I found a good little quote here I wanted to share, should have marked it. It said that he died, um, so he was in his 30s, he taught for 45 years, so he was almost 80, um, which to us seems, you know, relatively, it's like kind of appropriate age, but it seems like back then, that was really fucking old without antibiotics. So, you know, I mean, I even have a little bit of question of like, really, could do people live to be their 80s? I thought that the average life expectancy was like 40 or 50, you know, like a couple thousand years ago. But as this goes, so it might be myth, but, you know, that it there might be exaggeration as religion loves to do. But according to tradition, he was close to 80 years old when he died. And his body was frail and he had injuries. One time when he was attacked by Devadatta, his foot was smashed by a boulder. So he was limping and he said, my back has gone out. And, you know, some of us are just like in our fifties and we're already feeling like bad back. Like I get it. 30 more years of this shit, <laughs> you know, and the older you get, the more, you know, and walking around barefoot, sleeping on the ground. You know, one of the precepts for the monks is not to sleep in comfortable beds a vow of not sleeping in comfortable beds for the rest of your life, which often meant just sleeping on the floor, on the, you know, out in the, or if they had a monastery, a, a simple hut with a, you know, some grass and or something that you're sleeping on. No feather beds, no memory foam. So he talked about the end of his life being in a lot of pain, physical pain, almost like chronic pain. He said to the point where I'm never not uncomfortable. The only time that I'm not feeling physical pain is when I'm so concentrated in meditation that I'm entering uh, an absorption at what's called a jhana. The rest of the time I'm walking around uncomfortable with acceptance and tolerance and compassion for this chronic pain that I live in and I'm not hating it, which is what makes him different than us, right? That's why he's unawakened, right? That's the potential of like, imagine being in pain all of the time and not hating it, but having compassion for it and acceptance of, this is the way it is, pain, unpleasant. And then the loss, there must have been just before he died, his two best friends that he'd been with for all of his enlightened uh, life, they died before him, you know, the old, your two best friends die, your whole family is wiped out. And, you know, it's said that enlightenment ends grief and sorrow and lamentation. But there's also a quote in there where he says something like, you know, when Moggallana and Sariputta, these um, companions, lifelong companions died, he said it, it felt like uh, 
the, the Sangha all of a sudden felt empty, even though I was surrounded by people. I know that I've ever had that feeling where you're like in the midst of heavy grief and you're around a lot of people, but it just feels like, but they're not here. Whether it's death or a breakup or, you know, just that feeling of like. So my sense is that there was some grief, natural, healthy, normal grief, even in that process of awakening. That experience of being awakened. I forget, he was on his way somewhere and he was on some kind of important mission. He was going to talk to one of the kings or something like that. And, and uh, he stopped at somebody who he knew's home for a meal. Somebody was offering him a meal. And um, In the end, his appeal was to the individual that each should proceed towards enlightenment through confronting their individual situation and predicaments. Therefore, this is kind of his final words. He said, therefore, Ananda, be lamps unto yourselves. Betake yourselves to no external refuge. Hold fast as a refuge. Hold fast as a refuge to the Dharma, the truth. Work out your own salvation with diligence. Um, there was another piece where he said something like, um, everybody was, I can't find it right now. Everybody was, um, Right at his death, there was a vying for power. And there was a kind of um, the, a feeling of like a power vacuum of like, who are we going to be without the teacher? Now, according to the tradition, there was all of these enlightened beings around Arahants, fully enlightened people had done the practice. They had experienced compassion and wisdom and they got free. <coughs> But the way that the story is told is that as he's dying, people are like, okay, well, who's in charge now? Who do we, you know, who's going to be the top monk? <laughs> who's, who's the who's the jefe now, now that you're gone? And which one of us gets the prestige of the teacher seat? Um, and he refused to name a predecessor, successor successor um and i think that's interesting that that he said this statement of stop looking outside of yourself to the teacher stop looking for refuge in someone else or even in the hierarchical system stop seeking an external and be a lamp, be a light, be, use your own practice. Let the Dharma be your refuge. Let the teachings, the truth of your own direct experience be what you take refuge in rather than a person or a system or a religion or a, the whole Buddhist system should act as a mirror 
to back to us, back to you. But there's something about us humans. I talked a little bit about this last week, where we're like devotional by nature and external by nature. And, you know, we always want someone to. Most of us, you know, even the most anti-authority of us, like me, still want someone to tell us what to do. <coughs> tell me, tell me, you know, kind of, tell me that I'm doing it right. Tell me, you know, tell me how to do it and then praise me <laughs> for doing it right. Um, he said he was dying and... And he said something like, uh, you know, this is not a reason for sadness. This, he said, I, he, something like, I'm really happy to be dying. I finally get rid of this body that has just been pain for so long. I get to enter the final nirvana. This is actually a cause for celebration, which makes sense for an enlightened being where you're like, okay, cool. You're done. You've burned off all of your karma. You've played out your body for 80 years. You've been in pain for the last 10 or 20 years. Thank you for the teachings and let the body go. But he said, no, no, people were attached and they were clamoring for, you know, don't leave us. And at least tell us who's in charge now that you are leaving us. Give us some final direction. And his final direction back to the individual. You do your work. All by yourself. Do your work. You have the tools. You have, you know, the four noble truths. You know, the eightfold path. You've learned mindfulness. It's all you need. That will take you all the way to liberation. Practiced deeply, thoroughly, seriously, long-term, gradual process of awakening is underway. So this is so interesting in the um, contradiction of also, right? You have to do all of the work. We have to do all of the work ourselves and also take refuge in community. Take refuge in the Sangha. Find noble friendship, find wise friendship, find people that you can connect with that will support you in this really radical path of awakening. You got to do it all by yourself, but it's ideally done all by yourself in the company of others who are doing it all by themselves with the support of people who are like, yeah, I'm doing my inner work too. I'm also living by the precepts. I'm also taking refuge. I'm also meditating daily, regularly. Um, I'm also being of service. People who are going to mirror and support and encourage this thing that's not mirrored and supported or encouraged in the world. The Sangha can't do it for you, but it's pretty hard to do without the Sangha. Not long. I mean, I, of course, have this seat, right, where I'm here. I'm always here. <laughs> so I see the people who come and come for a while and then go away. 
thinking like, I was just going to do my own practice and then realizing like, oh, without support, I didn't really do my own practice. So I'm coming back. And it's not so much so for support from the teacher, but from support from the community. Just being together, associating, connecting, supporting, uh, holding each other accountable. I said it a few weeks ago that uh, treating the Sangha um, as a commitment. Something like, you don't come here to learn Buddhism. You come here to practice it. Some, you know, like the first year, maybe you learn some shit. <laughs> but if you come here for 10 years or 20 years, or you're not going to learn anything else, probably. You're going to hear the same shit over and over and over. You'll hear it in different ways. It'll make sense in different ways. Your experience, you know, hearing about compassion is much different than when you're really starting to experience compassion. Hearing about emptiness, not self, is way different than when you start experiencing the, the truth of the impersonal nature of your mind, your body. But it's the same message. It doesn't, the core teachings don't change. Apparently, it was uh, once said by the Buddha or attributed to the Buddha. He said, if it's the Buddha, if it's my teachings, it will be simple and straightforward enough for a seven-year-old child to understand it. And if it starts getting complicated, it's people just complicating it. Simple things like attachment causes suffering. <laughs> a seven-year-old, like, okay, I get that. Attachment, non-attachment. Everything's impermanent. These are the Buddha's teachings. When you start getting into, I don't know, some of, some of the commentary teachings and, you know, Buddhist psychology, and you know, a lot of it is probably not what the Buddha taught, but what later super smart people <laughs> attributed to the Buddha. So reflecting on where you sit, where we sit as um, in that place between taking refuge in community and the importance of developing friendships and association and just coming and being part of whether you're showing up on Zoom or you're showing up in the room and that commitment to that, I'm just going to come here. And, and last week I talked about... Um, this program that I'm going to offer next, next year, which is next week, um, starting in January, January 15th. I haven't put it up for registration yet, but I'll try to get it up this week. Um, this quarterly day-long retreat that we'll do um, and encouraging people to commit to the whole year of these quarterly um, days where we take the five precepts, we take the refuges, we do some meditation, and we uh, <coughs> commit to this accountability to the, each other with a process that will include saying, like, I'm totally committed to the five precepts, and here's all of the places where I've been falling off. I'm really committed to uh, not lying, but here's the 17 examples of where I exaggerated, you know, where I wasn't totally honest, where I was omitting, where I was exaggerating, where I was outright not telling the truth in a situation. Um, 
and taking that kind of responsibility and accountability to each other. And this is where the Sangha is so important for our own liberation, right? It's not about like, oh, I want to be accepted by the community. So it's, I want to be free. So I'm going to be accountable to other people who will help me get free. Well, like a, like a bit of an inventory. And so what I'm doing, the model one that I'm doing is what the um, monks do every fortnight when they recite their, monks and nuns, when they recite their vows. Before they can recite their vows, they have to admit to each other which precepts they've broken in the last two weeks. Now, I don't want to do this twice a month because it's too much. So I'm going to do it <laughs> quarterly, four times a year. And so us getting together and saying, I'm committed to these and I'm about to take the five precepts and commit to not lying and not killing and not stealing and avoiding sexual misconduct and avoiding intoxicants. But before I recommit to this, let me acknowledge where I you know, had a drink, broke the precept, where I lied, where I murdered. I did a little murdering this month. <laughs> And let me acknowledge that to a fellow person in the community. And then there's a ritual that we'll do where um, it's just, it's a forgiveness ritual as they do in the monastery, where then the person just says, I forgive you. The monks sharing it with each other and they just say, I forgive you. And then the abbot um, does this uh, experience and, and the role I'll be playing is the teacher abbot of just offering uh, forgiveness saying like this is a, a loving community where you're accepted your imperfections are accepted we're all trying to do this thing and being accountable to each other we offer each other forgiveness we support each other and encourage self-forgiveness with that core understanding that nobody can do it for us you know, and we don't do this thing just because we're accountable to other people, although whatever motivation it takes, you know, if being accountable and knowing you're going to have to acknowledge it to someone else helps you be more honest, great. Helps you murder less, great. Helps you avoid drinking and, and recreational drug use, great. You know, if that external motivation supports you and a little bit like in recovery where it's like, yeah, I don't want to have to admit that I relapse, so I'm not going to relapse. Even if that's not necessarily the right motivation, if it keeps you sober, it keeps you sober. Great. As we take to heart the Buddha's final words, strive diligently for your own liberation. And part of that diligence is refuge in Sangha, is being part of a community that supports you in this process of your awakening and that you support in your process of awakening. So I'll get that uh, up and I invite you all to join me on January 15th. It'll be available both on in person and uh, on Zoom. And uh, I did the write up, but we just haven't posted it yet. And we'll get it up.
Any questions, comments, reflections on these uh, words from the Buddha or this encouragement to do your own work with the support and engagement of a, a group? Community. I have a question, Noah. Jump in. Hi. Thank you for your uh, talk. I, uh, when, when the monks or, or whoever admits where they've broken the precepts and then another person says to them, I forgive you, how can a person forgive? Okay, let me back up. If forgiveness means letting go of a grudge or a resentment, how can a person forgive another if there's no grudge or resentment? Right. Okay. You know, it's, it's, I, I have the same question. And it's, so it's not so much like that kind of forgiveness. It's more like I accept you as you are. And I forgive your imperfections and, and love you anyways and support you anyways. It's that, you know, it's the kind of forgiving, accepting, caring. Uh, I'm not going to remove my support and, and connection from you since you weren't practicing the ethics perfectly. And it's not the kind of, uh, I forgive you because I resent you. It's, I, you know, some part of, uh, I think part of forgiveness is just this acceptance, is accepting each other just how we are, forgiving uh, each other for our imperfections. And so on some level, it's that. And I think it's just like a ritualized kind response. I forgive you. You should forgive yourself or, you know, so that it's like gently received um, rather than uh, any kind of tendency that a lot of us might have to shame each other. And this kind of Buddhist policing that can happen sometimes in, in communities where it's like, hey, that's against the precepts or you're a bad Buddhist of <laughs> just kind of saying like, it's, it's okay to be exactly as you are. We're all trying to, you know, if, if you're serious about this thing, you're trying to live by these five precepts. And if you fuck up, you're still totally welcome. And, you know, there's all in America, there's a lot of very serious Buddhists that don't even follow some of the precepts. They've just decided to set them aside or re kind of structure them for their own. And uh, so my sense of it, Ed, is that it's just more of a, a generous, receptive attitude of forgiveness. Thank you, Noah. Welcome. That, that's good, because my, my definition of forgiveness needed to be expanded <laughs> a little bit there to include acceptance. But there's also forgiveness without acceptance, like I don't resent what you anymore, but I don't accept you into my life because not you, but you know. Yeah. Anyway, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome. Any questions in the room? Juan, please. I sometimes think that the, uh, the most difficult thing, one of the most difficult things that least I've learned in my practice is that, uh, and, you know, part of it's cultural, where I came from, there's a lot of shame. And that shaming gets internalized to a great degree and it becomes an inhibition 
sometimes doing the work because you hit this kind of shame barrier to practice uh, formal practice. Let's say you're trying to get underneath something, get a space around your emotion. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know this is connected to some unproductive reactivity in your life. But there's that. How does the community forgiveness? How does that contribute to undermining those built-in shame responses? Does, or is that the intention? Is that part of that? Or is it more of a disturbing? You know, so this... Here, where so much of our work is inward out. Right. Is there not intended and outward in approach to that? You know, I can't say for sure how it's going to work in, in, in our community. Um, what I do know is that you know, my experience with sharing, getting honest about whether it's with a therapist or a Dharma teacher or um, a, a kind of mentor or sponsor in recovery, do, you know, sharing inventory and, you know, kind of being honest and sharing that stuff with each other, for me, has kind of normalized and lightened and reduced the shame response that actually when I keep it in and I'm just trying to figure it out and uh, and not actually share it with others, uh, the, it gives that kind of guilt and shame and much more power than when I just share it with a humbly, even though it's scary and it's uh, embarrassing and, and of just sharing it. But normalizing, one of my intentions for our community is the more that we can normalize it. And I always say, like, I feel like we're cr- trying to create, I'm trying to create a community where uh, we're real with each other where we're not fake spiritual, that we're honest, we're transparent. And it's one thing to say that. And then this feels like, oh, this is a way for us to do it. Let's be real with each other. And that hopefully some embarrassment might come up, maybe even some shame, but then being held in it and see, oh, I'm still loved. I'm still accepted. I'm still included. And maybe even my experience a lot has been the more honest and transparent I am, actually people care for us more. When we thought like, oh, if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. But then when you let somebody really know you, they'll actually like you better. <laughs> when, I, when you show me your heart, I like you better. So hopefully it'll function like that, but we'll see. Uh, let me take one online and then I'll come to you, Jonathan. Jeffrey, go ahead. Good evening. Thank you so much for having me. This is my uh, my first experience uh, with this and uh, meditation and Buddhism in general. I was just curious about the, uh, it's probably not an easy question to answer, but the, the, the sexuality thing, how does this come into play in, in, in Buddhism? Uh, what part of sexuality? All of it? Oh, I... Uh, yeah, like I said, it's not. I know it's probably not an easy question to answer. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious as to you know what you know, uh, sexuality. Like, I don't know if you're talking more like sexual morals. Like, yeah, there's uh, a so the the ethical moral guideline of Buddhism for householders, what we call lay people, non monastics, is to avoid sexual sexual misconduct, and sexual misconduct is defined as kind of lying and cheating um, in your sexual relationships, you know, breaking commitments or engaging with people who are in commitments. Um, Outside of that, 
consenting, appropriate relationships. Uh, there's nothing around, you have to be married. There's nothing around monogamy, any of that stuff. The Buddha was just quite open around, like, just don't cause harm. Don't intentionally lie and cheat and uh, be dishonest in your relationships. You're going to suffer enough in your relationships, even if you're honest. So, you know, just like be honest and be, have integrity and uh, make sure that there's good communication is my kind of add on. Um, so my sense is that Buddhist, uh, the Buddha's ideas around sexuality were pretty, what we'd consider liberal. And there wasn't a lot of shame or guilt or uh, judgment around sexuality. That having been said, he was also a person who chose to be celibate his whole life or, you know, for once he started his practice because he saw, and so then there's, there is this dilemma where it's like, okay, the precept is just avoid misconduct, but then our teacher is choosing to be celibate and saying, if you're really serious about Buddhism, maybe you don't want to have sex ever again, <laughs> right? Because the monks, the nuns are taking this vow of celibacy. So I know for myself, it's always set up this internal, a little bit dissidence of like, ooh, if I was really serious, would I just be celibate? And are we, are we the kind of second class Buddhists who are still fucking? <laughs> and this low level of, you know, sensual indulgence. Um, according to, you know, Buddhist tradition and teachings, it's possible to get enlightened as a householder. And there were examples of liberated people and stream enters and once returners and all of these different levels of awakening who were engaged in sexuality and relationships. Uh, but there's a kind of a core message that it's maybe more appropriate or easier as a celibate than it is um, that those of us who are choosing to continue to engage in sexuality are choosing a more difficult path to liberation. That it would probably be easier if you just let it go. It's you know, it's I, theoretically you can be non-attached and sexual, but good luck. <laughs> I mean, and truly intimate and non-attached, not the kind of detached, dissociated uh, attachment that some of us have experienced, <laughs> detachment, but actually a loving presence without clinging. So I hope that's helpful, Jeffrey. No, I really appreciate that information. Thank you so much. Welcome. Uh, Jonathan, go ahead. Thanks, Carl. Um, how did Songo, the community, handle anonymity when it came to such issues as sexuality, cheating or buying or stealing or, not to get murder? Mm -hmm. In the monastic Sangha? like in the past and how how we would look to do it and you know because there's going to be a certain all oh, right yeah yeah that, you know unlike for example you know uh, 12-step program you have that one-on-one -on -one with your sponsor aka your mentor in this it's held in confidence program where you you know that person you trust them I don't know how you were referring to just assigning us to somebody or just, you know, just, right. you know I know it just, I'm just going to put up blasting yeah. out to everybody in this sure. room. Oh, by the way, I frankly don't know 
I murdered someone. Yes, last one. I was one of those guys with smash and grab and rodeo and shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that it might be difficult for somebody to want to truly open up. So, how do you address that? You know, the way that I, I don't know if everybody at home could hear that, but like, what if we are uh, committing to this kind of process of accountability, but, but that we've done something that is illegal? Um, and how are we going to hold the um, anonymity around it? My sense is that um, you can share that you broke the first precept um, and, uh, you know, in a way that is still, you know, the first precept, which is the, the vow not to kill. And so, like, probably every single one of us is going to say, like, yeah, I broke the first precept. I mean, didn't you kill some ants last week? <laughs> because it includes ants. Oh. It includes spiders, spiders and, and uh, you know, mosquitoes. So probably all of us are going to be like, yeah, yeah, I totally murdered some mosquitoes last week. Or cockroaches or ants or whatever it was. Uh, and maybe some of you are really good Buddhists and you take the cockroaches in their little cockroach hotel and you move them outside. And, you know, there's a, an aspiration to move more towards that. So my sense is that, you know, you would just share it in a, like they say in recovery, in a general way, rather than the specifics. Um, and, that, and I'll, you know, in that program, I'll talk about that. And then, of course, the request for anonymity in the Sangha for that kind of stuff, just like we experience in recovery where you hope the stuff stays from your fifth step with your sponsor. But many of us have had plenty of experience of knowing that that shit can get around. More so in meetings, I'd say your sponsor. Your stuff you share in meetings and yeah. So it is one of those uh, risks in community, you know, and I'm not gonna claim that you can trust everyone in the room. It's unrealistic claim. Yeah. yeah. So we are out of time. It's nine o'clock. I'm happy no, to stay. Yeah. Who did it? Look up. Look up at this guy. Pepper's rage. We're out of time, but if you had a, something you wanted to talk to me about afterwards, happy to talk about it. Um, Friday night, New Year's Eve. Uh, 10 o'clock, we're doing an in-person and Zoom uh, New Year's Eve intention setting. We'll reflect on the past year. We'll set our intentions for the coming year. We'll light a candle. We'll uh, voice our, uh, we'll take the precepts and the refuges and we'll voice our intention to the, to the room and, and uh, have some meditative reflection. Um, I think it's sold out. There might be one or two tickets for in-person left. And if you didn't get a ticket and you want one, let me know. I'll, I'll sneak you in. Um, so just just let me know. And if you haven't signed up for online yet, you need to sign up in order to get the um, code, the Zoom code. It's not on this Zoom room. It's a different special New Year's Eve Zoom room. Um, and tonight's class, as always on Monday night, is done uh, free of charge. It's done by donation. The generosity of the people who uh, attend, whether you're attending on Zoom or you're attending in person, support against the stream, our nonprofit, um, to help us pay the rent and to support these teachings to continue to be offered without us turning into a 
one of those meditation or yoga centers that says you can't come in if you don't have 15 bucks. Everyone's welcome here, regardless of the ability to pay. And how it works is that you, as the Sangha, uh, freely offer whatever donations you'd like to offer. Uh, guideline is uh, $15 or $20 for a drop in class. And, and please consider, if you appreciate what I'm creating here at Against the Stream, um, becoming a monthly supporter. I was just saying, like, I'll, on the website, there's an option to say, I want to just give 25 or 50 or or $100 monthly to support the center and to just be part of this. And that's entirely up to you whether you do it or not, but uh, please consider it. And I have uh, at least two Against the Stream retreats scheduled um, for next year. The Memorial Day retreat will happen at Joshua Tree Retreat Center. I think it's May 27th through 30th. Registration for that should go up soon, this next week or so. Um, and then in the fall, um, I found a new retreat center up near Big Bear where we'll do the fall retreat, fall retreat it'll be mid-October, seven-day silent retreat in October. So Against the Stream will have May and October retreats. And then I have three or four refuge recovery retreats next year as well. So um, come on retreat. That's an important part of the process as well. Many merit developed from our practice and discussion of the Buddha's life and Dharma. Help us experience our own salvation, our own liberation, our own freedom. And sharing this merit outward in all directions, may each one of us do what needs to be done. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thank you for your generosity, your reflection, your attendance. Uh, I'll be out of town next week. You'll have Jason Murphy substituting. Come anyways. You're not coming for the teacher. You're coming for the teachings, for the Sangha community. Also, Jason's a good teacher. Come check him out. And um, I'll see you back the week after that. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.